Section 9 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle Chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, The Beatitudes Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12 And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The three chapters which begin with these verses deserve the special attention of all readers of the Bible. They contain what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Every word of the Lord Jesus ought to be most precious to professing Christians. It is the voice of the chief shepherd. It is the charge of the great bishop and head of the church. It is the master speaking. It is the word of him who spake as never man spake, and by whom we shall all be judged at the last day. Would we know what kind of people Christians ought to be? Would we know the character at which Christians ought to aim? Would we know the outward walk and inward habit of mind which become a follower of Jesus? Then let us often study the Sermon on the Mount. Let us often ponder each sentence and prove ourselves by it. Not least, let us often consider who they are that are called blessed at the beginning of the sermon. Those whom the great high priest blesses are blessed indeed. The Lord Jesus calls these blessed, who are poor in spirit. He means the humble and lowly-minded and self-abased. He means those who are convinced of their own sinfulness in God's sight. These are they who are not wise in their own eyes and holy in their own sight. They are not rich and increased with goods. They do not fancy they need nothing. They regard themselves as wretched and miserable, and poor and blind and naked. Blessed are all such. Humility is the very first letter in the alphabet of Christianity. We must begin low if we would build high. The Lord Jesus calls those blessed who mourn, he means those who sorrow for sin and grieve daily over their own shortcomings. These are they who trouble themselves more about sin than about anything on earth. The remembrance of it is grievous to them. The burden of it is intolerable. Blessed are all such. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. One day they shall weep no more. They shall be comforted. The Lord Jesus calls those blessed who are meek. He means those who are of a patient and contented spirit. They are willing to put up with little honor here below. They can bear injuries without resentment. 
they are not ready to take offence. Like Lazarus in the parable, they are content to wait for their good things. Blessed are all such. They are never losers in the long run. One day they shall reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10. The Lord Jesus calls those blessed who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He means those who desire above all things to be entirely conformed to the mind of God. They long not so much to be rich, or wealthy, or learned, as to be holy. Blessed are all such. They shall have enough one day. They shall awake up after God's likeness and be satisfied. Psalm chapter 17, verse 15. The Lord Jesus calls those blessed who are merciful. He means those who are full of compassion towards others. They pity all who are suffering, either from sin or sorrow, and are tenderly desirous to make their sufferings less. They are full of good works and endeavors to do good. Blessed are all such. Both in this life and that to come, they shall reap a rich reward. The Lord Jesus calls those blessed who are pure in heart. He means those who do not aim merely at outward correctness, but at inward holiness. They are not satisfied with a mere external show of religion. They strive to keep a heart and conscience void of offense, and to serve God with the spirit of the inner man. Blessed are all such. The heart is the man. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7 He that is most spiritual-minded will have the most communion with God. The Lord Jesus calls those blessed who are peacemakers. He means those who use all their influence to promote peace and charity on earth, in private and in public, at home and abroad. He means those who strive to make all men love one another by teaching that gospel which says, Love is the fulfilling of the law. Blessed are all such. They are doing the very work which the Son of God began when he came to earth the first time, and which he will finish when he returns the second time. Lastly, the Lord Jesus calls those blessed who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He means those who are laughed at, mocked, despised, and ill-used, because they endeavor to live as true Christians. Blessed are all such. They drink of the same cup which their master drank. They are now confessing him before men, and he will confess them before his father and the angels at the last day. Great is their reward. Such are the eight foundation stones which the Lord lays down at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Eight great testing truths are placed before us. May we mark well each one of them and learn wisdom. Let us learn how entirely contrary are the principles of Christ to the principles of the world. It is vain to deny it. They are almost diametrically opposed. The very characters which the Lord Jesus praises, the world despises. The very pride and thoughtlessness, and high tempers and worldliness, and selfishness and formality, and unlovingness, which abound everywhere, the Lord Jesus condemns. Let us learn how unhappily different is the teaching of Christ from the practice of many professing Christians. Where shall we find men and women among those who go to churches and chapels, who are striving to live up to the pattern we have read of today? Alas, there is much reason to fear that many baptized persons are utterly ignorant of what the New Testament contains. Above all, 
Let us learn how holy and spiritual-minded all believers should be. They should never aim at any standard lower than that of the Sermon on the Mount. Christianity is eminently a practical religion. Sound doctrine is its root and foundation, but holy living should always be its fruit. And if we would know what holy living is, let us often bethink ourselves who they are that Jesus calls blessed. End of section 9 Section 10 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle Chapter 5, verses 13 to 20 The Character of True Christians and the Connection Between the Teachings of Christ and the Old Testament Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20 Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out, and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law, or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do, and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. In these verses the Lord Jesus treats of two subjects. One is the character which true Christians must support and maintain in the world. The other is the relation between his doctrines and those of the Old Testament. It is of great importance to have clear views on both these subjects. True Christians are to be in the world like salt. Now salt has a peculiar taste of its own, utterly unlike anything else. When mingled with other substances, it preserves them from corruption. It imparts a portion of its taste to everything it is mixed with. It is useful so long as it preserves its savor, but no longer. Are we true Christians? Then behold here our place and its duties. True Christians are to be in the world like light. Now it is the property of light to be utterly distinct from darkness. The least spark in a dark room can be seen at once. Of all things created, light is the most useful. It fertilizes, it guides, it cheers. It was the first thing called into being. Without it the world would be a gloomy blank. Are we true Christians? Then behold again our position and its responsibilities. Surely, if words mean anything, we are meant to learn from these two figures that there must be something marked, distinct, and peculiar about our character if we are true Christians. It will never do to idle through life, thinking and living like others, if we mean to be owned by Christ as his people. Have we grace? Then it must be seen. Have we the Spirit? Then there must be fruit. Have we any saving religion? then there must be a difference of habits, 
tastes, and turn of mind between us and those who think only of the world. It is perfectly clear that true Christianity is something more than being baptized and going to church. Salt and light evidently imply peculiarity both of heart and life, of faith and practice. We must dare to be singular and unlike the world if we mean to be saved. The relation between our Lord's teaching and that of the Old Testament is cleared up by our Lord in one striking sentence. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. These are remarkable words. They were deeply important when spoken, as satisfying the natural anxiety of the Jews on the point. They will be deeply important as long as the world stands, as a testimony that the religion of the Old and New Testament is one harmonious whole. The Lord Jesus came to fulfill the predictions of the prophets, who had long foretold that a Saviour would one day appear. He came to fulfill the ceremonial law by becoming the great sacrifice for sin, to which all the Mosaic offerings had ever pointed. He came to fulfill the moral law by yielding to it a perfect obedience, which we could never have yielded, and by paying the penalty for our breach of it with his atoning blood, which we never could have paid. In all these ways he exalted the law of God, and made its importance more evident even than it had been before. In a word, he magnified the law and made it honorable. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 21 There are deep lessons of wisdom to be learned from these words of our Lord. Let us consider them well, and lay them up in our hearts. Let us beware of despising the Old Testament under any pretense whatever. Let us never listen to those who bid us throw it aside as an obsolete, antiquated, useless book. The religion of the Old Testament is the germ of Christianity. The Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The Old Testament is the gospel in the blade. The New Testament is the gospel in full ear. The saints in the Old Testament saw many things through a glass darkly. But they all looked by faith to the same Saviour, and were led by the same Spirit, as ourselves. These are no light matters. Much infidelity begins with an ignorant contempt of the Old Testament. Let us, for another thing, beware of despising the law of the Ten Commandments. Let us not suppose for a moment that it is set aside by the Gospel, or that Christians have nothing to do with it. The coming of Christ did not alter the position of the Ten Commandments one hair's breadth. If anything, it exalted and raised their authority. Romans chapter 3, verse 31. The law of the Ten Commandments is God's eternal measure of right and wrong. By it is the knowledge of sin. By it the Spirit shows men their need of Christ, and drives them to Him. To it Christ refers His people, as their rule and guide for holy living. In its right place it is just as important as the glorious gospel. It cannot save us, we cannot be justified by it, but never, never let us despise it. It is a symptom of an ignorant and unhealthy state of religion when the law is lightly esteemed. The true Christian delights in the law of God. Romans chapter 7 verse 22 In the last place, let us beware of supposing that the gospel has lowered the standard of personal holiness, and that the Christian is not intended to be as strict and particular about his daily life as the Jew. 
This is an immense mistake, but one that is unhappily very common. So far from this being the case, the sanctification of the New Testament saint ought to exceed that of him who has nothing but the Old Testament for his guide. The more light we have, the more we ought to love God. The more clearly we see our own complete and full forgiveness in Christ, the more heartily ought we to work for his glory. We know what it cost to redeem us far better than the Old Testament saints did. We have read what happened in Gethsemane and on Calvary, and they only saw it dimly and indistinctly as a thing yet to come. May we never forget our obligations. The Christian who is content with a low standard of personal holiness has got much to learn. End of section 10 Section 11 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle Chapter 5, verses 21 to 37 Spirituality of the Law Proved by Three Examples Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 37 Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell-fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, first to be reconciled to thy brother, and then to come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out of thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old times, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be, Yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. These verses deserve the closest attention of all readers of the Bible. 
a right understanding of the doctrines they contain lies at the very root of Christianity. The Lord Jesus here explains more fully the meaning of his words, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill. He teaches us that his gospel magnifies the law and exalts its authority. He shows us that the law, as expounded by him, was a far more spiritual and heart-searching rule than most of the Jews supposed. And he proves this by selecting three commandments out of the ten as examples of what he means. He expounds the sixth commandment. Many thought that they kept this part of God's law, so long as they did not commit actual murder. The Lord Jesus shows that its requirements go much further than this. It condemns all angry and passionate language, and especially when used without a cause. Let us mark this well. We may be perfectly innocent of taking life away, and yet be guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. He expounds the seventh commandment. Many supposed that they kept this part of God's law if they did not actually commit adultery. The Lord Jesus teaches that we may break it in our thoughts, hearts, and imaginations, even when our outward conduct is moral and correct. The God with whom we have to do looks far beyond actions. With him even a glance of the eye may be a sin. He expounds the third commandment. Many fancied that they kept this part of God's law, so long as they did not swear falsely and performed their oaths. The Lord Jesus forbids all vain and light swearing altogether, all swearing by created things, even when God's name is not brought forward, all calling upon God to witness, excepting on the most solemn occasions, is a great sin. Now all this is very instructive. It ought to raise very serious reflections in our minds. It calls us loudly to use great searching of heart. And what does it teach? It teaches us the exceeding holiness of God. He is a most pure and perfect being, who sees faults and imperfections, where man's eyes often see none. He reads our inward motives. He notes our words and thoughts, as well as our actions. He requireth truth in the inward parts. Oh, that men would consider this part of God's character more than they do. There would be no room for pride, and self-righteousness, and carelessness, if only they saw God as he is. It teaches us the exceeding ignorance of man in spiritual things. There are thousands and ten thousands of professing Christians, it may be feared, who know no more of the requirements of God's law than the most ignorant Jews. They know the letter of the Ten Commandments well enough, they fancy, like the young ruler, all these things have I kept from my youth up. They never dream that it is possible to break the sixth and seventh commandments, if they do not break them by outward act or deed. And so they live on satisfied with themselves, and quite content with their little bit of religion. Happy indeed are they who really understand God's law. It teaches us our exceeding need of the Lord Jesus Christ's atoning blood to save us. What man or woman upon earth can ever stand before such a God as this, and plead not guilty? Who is there that has ever grown to years of discretion, and not broken the commandments thousands of times? There is none righteous, no, not one. Without a mighty mediator, we should every one be condemned in the judgment. Ignorance of the real meaning of the law is one plain reason why so many do not value the gospel and content themselves with a little formal Christianity. They do not see the strictness and holiness of God's Ten Commandments. 
If they did, they would never rest till they were safe in Christ. In the last place, this passage teaches us the exceeding importance of avoiding all occasions of sin. If we really desire to be holy, we must take heed to our ways that we offend not in our tongues. We must be ready to make up quarrels and disagreements, lest they gradually lead on to greater evils. The beginning of strife is like the letting out of water. We must labor to crucify our flesh and mortify our members, to make any sacrifice and endure any bodily inconvenience rather than sin. We must keep our lips, as it were, with a bridle, and exercise an hourly strictness over our words. Let men call us precise, if they will, for so doing. Let them say, if they please, that we are too particular. We need not be moved. We are merely doing as our Lord Jesus Christ bids us, and, if this is the case, we have no cause to be ashamed. End of section 11 Section 12 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle Chapter 5 Verses 38 to 48. The Christian Law of Love Set Forth. Matthew 5 and verses 38 to 48. Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, That ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. You have here our Lord Jesus Christ's rules for our conduct towards one another. He that would know how he ought to feel and act towards his fellow men should often study these verses. They deserve to be written in letters of gold. They have extorted praise even from the enemies of Christianity. Let us mark well what they contain. The Lord Jesus forbids everything like an unforgiving and revengeful spirit. A readiness to resent injuries, a quickness in taking offense, a quarrelsome and contentious disposition, a keenness in asserting our rights, all, all are contrary to the mind of Christ. The world may see no harm in these habits of mind, but they do not become the character of the Christian. Our Master says, Resist not evil. 
the Lord Jesus enjoins on us a spirit of universal love and charity. We ought to put away all malice. We ought to return good for evil and blessing for cursing. We ought to love even our enemies. Moreover, we are not to love in word only, but in deed. We are to deny ourselves and take trouble in order to be kind and courteous. If any man compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. We are to put up with much and bear much, rather than hurt another or give offense. In all things we are to be unselfish. Our thought must never be, How do others behave to me? But, What would Christ have me to do? A standard of conduct like this may seem, at first sight, extravagantly high, but we must never content ourselves aiming at one lower. We must observe the two weighty arguments by which our Lord backs up this part of his instruction. They deserve serious attention. For one thing, if we do not aim at the spirit and temper which are here recommended, we are not yet children of God. Our Father in Heaven is kind to all. He sends rain on good and on evil alike. He causes His Son to shine on all without distinction. A son should be like his father. But where is our likeness to our Father in Heaven if we cannot show mercy and kindness to everybody? Where is the evidence that we are new creatures if we lack charity? It is altogether wanting. We must yet be born again. John chapter 3 verse 7 For another thing, if we do not aim at the spirit and temper here recommended, we are manifestly yet of the world. Even those who have no religion can love those who love them. They can do good and show kindness when their affliction or interest moves them. But a Christian ought to be influenced by higher principles than these. Do we flinch from the test? Do we find it impossible to do good to our enemies? If that be the case, we may be sure we have yet to be converted. As yet, we have not received the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 There is much in all this which calls loudly for solemn reflection. There are few passages of Scripture so calculated to raise in our minds humbling thoughts. We have here a lovely picture of the Christian as he ought to be. We cannot look at it without painful feelings. We must all allow that it differs widely from the Christian as he is. Let us carry away from it two general lessons. In the first place, if the spirit of these ten verses were more continually remembered by true believers, they would recommend Christianity to the world far more than they do. We must not allow ourselves to suppose that the least words in this passage are trifling and of small moment. They are not so. It is attention to the spirit of this passage which makes our religion beautiful. It is the neglect of the things which it contains by which our religion is deformed. Unfailing courtesy, kindness, tenderness, and consideration for others are some of the greatest ornaments to the character of the child of God. The world can understand these things if it cannot understand doctrine. There is no religion in rudeness, roughness, bluntness, and incivility. The perfection of practical Christianity consists in attending to the little duties of holiness as well as to the great. In the second place, if the spirit of these ten verses have more dominion and power in the world, 
how much happier would the world be than it is? Who does not know that quarrelings, strifes, selfishness, and unkindness cause half the miseries by which mankind is visited? Who can fail to see that nothing would so much tend to increase happiness as the spread of Christian love, such as is here recommended by our Lord? Let us all remember this. Those who fancy that true religion has any tendency to make men unhappy are greatly mistaken. It is the absence of it that does this, and not the presence. True religion has the directly contrary effect. It tends to promote peace, and charity, and kindness, and good will among men. The more men are brought under the teaching of the Holy Spirit, the more they will love one another, and the more happy they will be. End of section 12